0: Betsy, welcome! Thanks for coming back a second time. I think you're our second second guest. I can't remember
1: who the first one was. Brian, can you? It was uh, Nick Mark from Seattle, I think. Oh,
2: okay. So uh,
1: good knowledge. Repeat your amigos podcast guest. It's quite a career honor. Betsy, so
2: welcome. (laughs) it is. Yes, thank you. I am honored to
1: come. This will (laughs) be a (laughs) highlight.
0: Betsy. you, uh, you're Maybe you could introduce yourself in a second, but you're presenting the 426-AXI-Pembro versus Sunitinib updated data at ASCO this year, and maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that.
2: Sure. So I'm Betsy Flamack. I'm a GU medical oncologist in Philadelphia at Fox Chase Cancer Center, and uh, along with the two of you and many other investigators around the world, uh, we... Uh, pulled off a phase three study of PEMBRO plus AXI versus sunitinib in first line renal cell. And the data, Tom, I think, yeah, you presented them and Brian published them and updates have been presented at prior meetings. But one of the things people always ask me and probably you is, well, we don't have long-term data for this study. So um, IPI and if we have long-term data, we're going to lean on that. And that makes sense. I think when we look at these first-line treatment decisions, we really want to know how people do over the long term. Um, this is our first choice in terms of their treatment, not our only decision point for each patient, um, but overall survival and long-term outcomes are really important, I think. So, so maybe
1: just go over the, nice. the high-level highlights and, and how they're different or updated from the original.
2: Yeah. So the update that we are presenting at after this year um again it's this is a study of 860 patients randomized to two arms the primary endpoints were met uh they were met at a really early follow-up and that's overall survival and pfs um so we don't speak as much to those primary endpoints only to say that they continue to show benefits so the overall survival and the intent to treat population continues to be superior um it's really nice that out at two years we have three quarters of patients still alive. And this is advanced renal cell. I mean, this is a disease where, um, you know, five, 10 years ago, that's not something we were able to achieve with the therapies. So
1: Betsy, let me, let's talk about overall survival because that's going to come up. So the original hazard ratio is 0.53. As you noted, that was 12 ish months of follow-up. Now there's, I think, minimum of 23 median of 27 months of follow-up approximately if I'm remembering the numbers correctly. And uh,
2: yeah, it's actually only seven months of follow up for that first
1: minimum was seven analysis,
2: believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So early.
1: And then the hazard ratio now is 0.68. So Mm -hmm. give me your thoughts on the change in that number.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, when you cut these curves early and then over time, they're Mm -hmm. going to settle. And it's really important to watch for that, right? We sort of want to see where they are long term. And when you look at long term data, you're looking back at sort of a broader swath of information. Sure. And so the hazard ratio itself, um, as a clinician, isn't that meaningful to me. I think we still know there's a benefit, there's a landmark benefit to giving the combination up front. And with any given patient, who knows what their hazard ratio is, right? We're looking at it overall. So um, the number has changed to me. That's, that's a figure, not necessarily. Um, impactful clinically, yeah. but I don't know. What yeah, I
1: agree know. with you. I think um, I think what we're just seeing here is more mature data. And if you're, I think the nevo first cut was at about, I think it was 17 or 18 months of minimum follow-up. So I think, you know, when we saw some early combo nevo data on press release, which was about that same point, I, I think analyzed at the same point, I think we'd see similar hazard ratios across these major studies but we're not. We're getting Brian, these various time points. Brian, Betsy, yes, I sir.
0: guess there will be people in the community who will look at a number going from 0.53 to 0.68 and say if that continues to drift in that direction, um, that's you know that's going to end up not being significant, firstly. And I think there are other people who might say that um, with 0.53 and 0.68, that does look like one is less good than the other. Is that how how are you gonna how how are you gonna articulate your position on that? Where where do you sit?
2: Um, I think you know we know now two years of follow up. That's what we have for this study, and at two years we see that the benefit mm-hmm. is zero point six eight. Um, not everyone's going to have the the luxury of making it out beyond that and being able to. Um, you know, achieve whatever difference or, or improvement is seen in the hazard ratio beyond that. So I almost think the earlier hazard ratios and sort of the earlier um, division (laughs) of... This is is fantastic, We've never
0: had a a helicopter. We've had a train.
1: (laughs) uh, We got a new puppy in the Rini house. (laughs) This is fantastic.
2: Very Very cute. 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 Okay, uh,
0: (laughs) fine. Let's keep going with the puppy. But Betsy, sorry, because it wasn't really important what you were saying. Could you just come back? Could you you just repeat that for us?
2: Yeah, so I think earlier, the, er, the early split is actually impactful and impacts in some ways more patients, yeah. right? Because unfortunately out at 24 months, you know, some patients have died already and, and aren't going to benefit either way from either arm. So, um, you know, it, it's all really how you cut it. Again, the hazard ratio to me doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, the landmarks I think are really interesting to me. And when I talk to patients, um, those are sort of the things that we highlight because it's something you can you can hang your hat on and think yeah. of. And, you know, the longer we keep patients going so the more options they have for all the cool next line therapies we're working on developing and putting in trials. So, yeah, I think
1: there's two um, uh, there's tell
2: the whole two, story.
1: Two important points there. One is sort of the early part of the curve and the late part of the curve. So both are important, mm-hmm. right? The whole curve's important because my my mm-hmm. belief is some patients who don't get VEGF therapy up front will die. Right. Will die before they can get mm-hmm. other therapy. And that's kind of what you were alluding to Betsy that that early landmark of 90% alive at 12 months, that early part of the curve that produced the dramatic split. But having said that, you know, the tail is important also for immunotherapy. So I think we don't do a good job in oncology of sort of recognizing all of the curve. We talk about medians or, or hazard ratio, which does, but then even in a hazard ratio that conversation, I think gets lost a little bit. So, um, but, right. but it is important. And we know. talk about
2: sales a lot, right? We talk about the end of the curve a right. lot. Um, and sometimes our focus is, is, is there sort of to the, you know, exclusion of other areas of it. Yeah. Right. Every patient, is wow. we don't know where to fit And the whole picture, I think, is what we need to so focus So I guess on. the
0: curves go apart early. They go apart early because VEGF is important early on. Uh, they stay apart. And this most recent data cut is a more robust analysis and access to subsequent therapies may have had some influence on that. But the bottom line is that the, uh, the benefit persists for axi-pembro and the, and the curves currently
1: remain apart. Is and that I a think, fair summary? I think it's fair. Betsy, um, do you have the numbers in front of you about subsequent therapy? Because I think that's an important point.
2: Yeah, so subsequent therapy is interesting. I My two cents on that is that any data from any study, the way it's collected, has got to be incomplete right. because once they're off study, people aren't necessarily diligently sure. um, reporting all that. Mm-hmm. But I do have the numbers me. Um, in terms of patients who receive subsequent therapy, 55% on Pembro received it and 69% on Sunitinib received it. Now that makes sense because more patients on Sunitinib required right. it because more of them provided early. Um, One point I tried to make in the presentation is that people may not require subsequent therapy for very different reasons. They may die before they can, are appropriate for subsequent therapy. They may want it and need it, but not have access to it in their health system. Or they may be doing so well that they agree with their physician to take a treatment break and not pursue subsequent therapy. And those are completely different categories. So when we look at this, I think it's encouraging. It seems like most patients have access to it um but whether they didn't the rest didn't get it because they didn't need it or right it, it's because unclear. yeah i
1: agree those numbers seem encouraging well somewhat encouragingly high that most people did get access to such subs- and most patients on the Sutan arm got PD-1 therapy, subsequent Bexia, pd1 therapy i've got two two
0: That's further right. questions for you the first response and progression-free survival and the adverse event profile is there anything new in those three parameters that jump off the page that listeners should be aware of
2: um i think when we look at response rate and pfs those are the two categories of benefit that we're seeing in favorable risk as well as poor and intermediate um so that's i think an important point to highlight overall survival was not yet um seen to be different in the favorable risk group in the study, even if there's longer follow-up. So I think um, progression-free survival and overall response rate, those are important parameters also um, to look at, especially if you have a patient um, symptomatic from disease who needs a response. And what's your take on those
0: good risk patients right now? um, Because the hazard ratio is around one um, for axi-pembro for survival in this group what's your interpretation of, of, of that data and, and how do you look at good risk patients currently?
2: Right. So I, I'm a bit of an outlier, perhaps I'll say that up front. I think good risk patients are good risk. And fortunately, most are still alive at this two-year two cutoff, data cutoff for this study. Um, and that's great, but that's also what we expect because by definition, favorable risk patients do well. So it's possible that they're all doing so well because of their prognostic group. And so it's just too early or too much to ask of any treatment to really show a difference in that group. But the way I use those data clinically is if I have a patient with really indolent renal cells someone perhaps I've observed for many years who just needs to start treatment, I will sometimes start with a VEGEP because there's not yet an indication that an investment upfront in dual therapy with the disruption of the patient's schedule in terms of coming for infusion and the potential for IRAEs is worth it for that. Um, so right now that's how I interpret those data.
1: So I guess my opinion is, you know, I'm more of a, a doublet user in everybody. Um, what's interesting is that if you look, right. if you look at that data, there's, there's a response rate and a PFS advantage in favorable risk with the addition of an IO agent, right? So otherwise you're just comparing two yeah. VEGF agents which is interesting right. as we think of these favorable risk as being VEGF responsive, which they clearly are. But the IO is, is adding something to those tumor shrinkage endpoints, even though not yet survival. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot about the biology of these folks we don't understand. My right. take on this is, is similar to that. I, I think, Betsy,
0: the point that you've made is that this is um, a long game in the good risk patients. It was a bit like when the Chinese were asked about what the, whether they thought Napoleon was a successful general. Uh, they said only time will tell. And um, I think it's the same principle. This early assessment of good risk patients, by definition, is is is, is yeah. counterintuitive the early data, the early surrogate markers of response and progression-free survival suggest that um, the combination is is important. And therefore, when you have a patient in front of you, you said, I can't tell you exactly what the survival benefit is going to be in the medium and long term. But what I can tell you is that all of the indicators are getting the combination looks better at the moment. And so that's sort of how I look at it. But I think it's a complex issue. Um, Betsy, there was, some issue, there was some data on, uh, on response. Um, there was some data on complete response from the study, but there was also some really interesting data on depth of response. Do you want to go through that quickly for us?
2: Yeah, sure. So one of the interesting analyses we did for this um, was looking at depth of response, and that was defined as um, maximum sort of percent decrease in target lesions. And so the waterfall plots, actually for both uh, arms of the study, look really good. For pembrolizumab, 94% of patients had reduction in tumor burden. Um, so very few patients progressed through this combo. in uh, Sunitinib, that figure was 86%. But we look to see if incremental depth of response was linked to survival. And what's interesting, and it's encouraging to stream the presentation, it's a lot easier to see graphically in the curves, is that... Um, Four patients on axi-pembro, patients with near CR, so that's 80 to 100% tumor shrinkage, but not quite CR, did almost as well in terms of overall survival as those with CR. And as expected, the survival in that group was excellent. And then there's an incremental decrement in um, in terms of the curves and overall survival, depending on sort of how shallow the, the response went from there. Um, in terms of the target lesions, that relationship does not, Uh, show up in the student NIV arm, where really the CR patients did great, there weren't many of them, um, and everyone else, the depth of response didn't seem to correlate directly uh, with survival. So um, interesting, sort of biologically interesting to think about. Um, Again, for a given patient, I think hard to directly apply, only to say um, near-CR is the same as Brian, where are
0: we with the CR issue? I can't go to a renal cancer meeting without someone saying <laughs> that, that CR's. is on the big old and there seems to be a. It seems to be one of the debating points that we've really picked up. I, my worry yeah. is, it kind of reminds me a bit about the pazopanib, sunitinib debate, where we've ended up. We have to talk about stuff, so we found this to talk about, and I'm not sure how helpful. Yeah,
2: it
1: is. <laughs> I think what was telling is after you presented these data at ASCOGU, the very first question was about CR right? You had just presented the most positive phase three in the history of the disease. And the first question was about the CR rates. So people are very focused on it because they're focused on cure, which is, which is important. But I think as Betsy just outlined the data, it's more than just the CRs that are going to do really well long-term and potentially be cured. So I think my, my take on that analysis is that the motivation is to expand the discussion around CRs because we understand there are limitations to scans and residual lesions that may or may not contain viable tumor. So I think by expanding the population of patients that we know benefits, again, if you look at the Checkmate data, there's a third of patients progression-free out at a distant time point. Um, They're not all CRs, right, because that CR rate's 11%, but... So there's, there's, you know, how are we going to define and how are we going to identify those patients, I think, is something we do need to talk about. I don't think we need to talk about CR numbers. You know, the axiomibro CR number is <clears throat> now 9%. It went up a little bit. Ipinevo is 11%. Those, you know, all these numbers are overlapping. They're all going to come in around 10%. But I just don't think it's the right way to compare regimens. But it's just what we're stuck in. Let's see. what do you think about the
0: current debate around ipilimumab and nivolumab? versus axitinib and pembrolizumab in the intermediate and poorest population. Clearly, one gets the impression that there are people who prefer one combination versus the other. And it's difficult when you have a patient in front of you to give them the choice. And I also can't see clinicians giving patient A this one and patient B that. So it is, I think, quite a black and white sort of choice. What's your, what's your take on, on, on the current data and how does the, the update that you've just presented add to that debate?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And there'll be um, further updates, of course, to ipi nevo over time as well. Um, I, you know, the the very high rate of patients requiring high dose steroids on ipi is the main barrier between me and that regimen. Um, and I don't yet see true improvement um, in terms of benefit, in terms of any of the endpoints with that combination over pembrolux, certainly in intermediate and porous patients. I think, um, I just have a better experience with Pembro and Then again, also um, the Pembro and Accitinib, the Pembro ends at two years. So uh, we're learning how those patients do. Hopefully that will be the right thing to do to stop it. Um, but it's just much easier on the patient. The, what I really hear about if is a very sharp focus on that tail of that curve, which is great. I mean, it is great to see survival plateauing in patients treated years ago. Um, with IP and evo, But, um, you know, Brian, you and I did the very first studies of that combination in real cell and have seen it play out over more than three years, you know, five, seven years in patients. I'm just, you know, we're going to have to keep watching the tail of that curve is my impression. And as the data become more mature for Pembro and Axie, I really think we're going to see a nice tail on that combination also. And that's really informed by the phase one experience with Pembro and Axie. Um, and we're presenting that at AFCO as well with fall overall survival. So that's sort of an early look at what I think this study will look like at years three and five. Brian, the same question to you, I guess. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> I, you know, I agree with Betsy. I tend to use pembro upfront up front just because of sort of activity across risk groups and ease of use. Um, but, I, you know, this, yeah. this tail of the curve thing, I, I think CTLA-4 inhibition is an important component of treatment. Um, and as the, I think the three of us have talked about before, I think we're, we're rapidly moving towards triplets. And if those are tolerable and have the benefits, I think they will, then this whole discussion sort of goes away. Right. Cause we'll be inhibiting all three pathways and hopefully, you know, having even better outcomes, but, but obviously those data are some time off. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of getting at both the early part of the curve and the late part of the curve are important.
2: Right. Yep.
0: Look, I think we're just about to wrap this up. We've been we're, we're on 19 and a half minutes. We've got 30 <laughs> seconds left. Um, any chance of a, a, quick, uh, a quick appearance from the, uh, the party uh, again, Brian? Or I'll he's taking a this. nap now.
1: She's taking a nap now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Terrific. Betty, listen, thanks so much for today and your uh, repeat your performance was, was fantastic, me. as always. And, um, <laughs> and, Brian, um, soon, and Brian, see you soon. You have a nice
1: weekend. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks a lot.